1: Hello friends and welcome, welcome back to the Bill Press Pod. We live in historic times, for only the third time in our history, a President of the United States will most surely be impeached by the House of Representatives. Donald J. Trump, accused of abusing the powers of his office by inviting a foreign government to intervene in an American election. And for obstruction of Congress, for doing everything he could to prevent the House from exercising its constitutional responsibilities of impeachment. Next, early in 2020, the Senate will convene as a court with the Chief Justice presiding to rule based on those articles of impeachment on whether Donald Trump should be thrown out of office. So, how would a Senate trial work and how is it decided? Nobody knows more about the impeachment process than Neil Katyal, former acting Solicitor General of the United States under President Obama, who's argued 39 cases before the Supreme Court and who's the author of the powerful new book, Impeach! The Case Against Donald J. Trump. I caught up with Neil Katyal in his office in downtown Washington. Neil, it's good to see you. Thanks for giving us some time.
2: Thank you. It's really a delight to be with you.
1: Let me ask you, first of all, is there any doubt in your mind that President Trump abused uh, the power of the office for his own personal benefit? And if so, how? No doubt. And I ask that having read your book, Impeach, by the
2: way. No doubt at all. It's um, as plain as day. And um, I wrote the book, really, because I think it's a very simple story and one that Trump is a master of throwing up chaff and obscuring the story. But the story is really simple. It's just... The president tried to cheat in the 2020 election, and he tried to do so with the help of a foreign power. Um, And you know that's the that's the heart of what impeachment's all about. And I don't think there's actually even that much dispute about a large number of the facts with respect to what I said. Um, And and that's why the president is trying to attack the process and this and that. And now he's trying to get the Senate to you know, almost not even have a trial, Um, you know, something more of a show trial with with no witnesses. But I think that's all just a reflection of the basic fact that you've got a president who's gotten caught with his hands in the cookie jar. Um, And uh, this is not about cookies. This is about the gravest thing imaginable. You know, how we police our executive is often through reelections. And this reelection, he tried to actually get some help, uh, some illegitimate help from a foreign government.
1: And you talk about uh, applying two things to this case. One is the yardstick rule, and then the Pence standard. Let's talk first about the yardstick rule.
2: Great. So the yardstick rule is, you know, basically what I do on the first day of my law classes. I've been fortunate to teach at Georgetown now for two decades. And You know, law students always come in with their biases. Some favor corporations, some favor the little guys, some favor men, some favor women. You know, there's all we all have, you know, natural inclinations toward one side or the other. And so one of the things you teach law students on day one is, hey, I want you to pretend the, you know, to flip the parties. You know, if you're you know, if you think of yourself as a plaintiff person, go represent the corporation in your head and stand up in class and defend the corporation and vice versa. And The idea is really to just try and get at, you know, what makes law different than politics? It's really one central thing, which is that in law, you know, justice is supposed to be blind. I mean, the statue Mm -hmm. of Lady Justice Mm -hmm. is literally blindfolded and that the idea there is the same rules apply to you, whether you're, uh, you know, a man or a woman or a Democrat or Republican or, you know, whatever. And, And so that's what the yardstick rule basically is. It's this idea that just... We apply the same yardstick when we're talking about matters of justice. It doesn't matter whether it's Republican or Democrat. And the way I rose, you know, came up with it was, um, you know, uh, 10 days into this new presidency, the president nominated Neil Gorsuch to the Supreme Court. Right. And um, I actually had pr- been privileged to work with him, and I thought he was a real judge. And so I, uh, even though I'm a Democrat and so on. Um, and even though he wouldn't have been whom I would have put on the Supreme Court if I were president, yeah. I recognized we lost the election. And so I went and I, um, I formally introduced him at his hearings and wrote an op-ed in the New York Times about it, um, which, uh, you know, created a lot of <laughs> enmity among uh, Democrats towards me. And what I said in response was this. I said, look, I was privileged to serve as Elena Kagan's deputy solicitor general. And when she was nominated, I was so mad at the Republicans in the Senate who voted against her, because I said to myself, you know, here's one of the most qualified people ever to serve on the United States Supreme Court. How dare you vote against her? Um, And some of them did. But my yardstick was, if you've got someone with that much caliber and qualification— they should be confirmed to the Supreme Court, and it can't just be about politics and, oh, you lost the election, so you're going to vote against any of the president's nominees. And when it came to Gorsuch, I said, I want to apply that yardstick here. Mm -hmm. I want the same yardstick. And so if I thought it was unfair to vote against Kagan, if I thought that was wrong, then isn't it equally wrong for Democrats to vote against Gorsuch? So that's the origin of the yardstick rule.
1: And and in in the case of impeachment, um, I guess it would be applying the same yardstick to the Trump impeachment that you did to the Clinton impeachment. Yeah, or the, Bill you could do, Yeah,
2: you could make it even simpler and the book tries to is just to say imagine instead of President Trump going and trying to get secret help mm-hmm. from the Ukrainian government, instead imagine it's President Obama that right. did it. How would you feel about that? And I can't imagine. I mean, The Republicans who went, you know, lost their marbles when he wore a tan suit. I mean, you know, (laughs) I can't imagine that anyone would do anything but say that is a core impeachable offense. And I sure hope that Democrats would too if a President Obama did that. Um, I wouldn't be able to look at myself in the mirror if I thought that um, my president, I don't care about politics, if my president did that and, and, uh, you know, and I stood by or I made excuses or something like that. There are things in this country that are far more important than politics. It's why, you know, my parents came to this country because of its belief in something like the yardstick rule that justice is blind.
1: So if we follow the yardstick rule, we should also follow the Pence standard, Mm -hmm. which you talk about, and you use that as an epigram to the book.
2: Exactly. I start the book that way. So, you know, in 2008, there was a member of Congress who said, what is this business about high crimes and misdemeanors? Well, it amounts to a simple thing, which is, is the president putting his personal interest above that of the American people? That congressman was Mike Pence. Um, And I think that's exactly the right constitutional standard. You go back all the way to the Philadelphia Convention. That's what what it's about. And I think what the debate should be in Congress now is... Did the president do that? And I think the answer to that is is pretty obvious.
1: Of all what some people would argue, the um, impeachable offenses Donald Trump has committed, the House Judiciary Committee has only focused on two and named two, and there are two articles of impeachment. Did they make a mistake going so narrow, or is this what is Donald Trump right in calling it impeachment light?
2: No, I don't think they made a mistake. Um, You know, I I think that was wise. In the book, I advocated for three articles um, and not more. I also believed in a tight case focused on Ukraine. Um, And so first I want to talk about that, you know, tight Mm -hmm. case versus something broader with a bunch of articles and then talk about two versus three. Right. So I said three articles all focused on Ukraine because I was worried that the Mueller investigation gets confused. It was 22 months uh, Attorney General Barr has already spun it in a way that you know, has shaped public consciousness, even though that's not what the report says at all. It found right. 10 instances of obstruction of justice, but you know, he spun it in that way. And I didn't think that was going to be a particularly effective way to present this. Um, and so instead, I thought there should be, and the book lays this out three articles, one for abuse of power, one for bribery, and one mm-hmm. for obstruction of justice. And just a word on obstruction of justice because it gets lost as everyone focuses on Ukraine. I mean, this president has done something no president has ever done in American history, say that the Congress in an impeachment investigation can't get a single document, single witness from the executive branch, a complete 100 percent gag order. Um, that is, to me, as bad is going and trying to cheat in an election. That is totally undoing our separation of powers and everything our Constitution was designed to do, which is to say, we want a strong president, but we also want a check on that strong president in the form of impeachment. So, those are the three articles um, that I thought. Um, what what the House Judiciary Committee has essentially done is smush uh, one and two, abuse of power and bribery, into one mm-hmm. simple abuse of power um, uh, charge, which is absolutely fine. I don't think that there's uh, you know anything. Uh, you know problematic about it I mean if Trump's argument is oh I'm only should be impeached on two things and not three that doesn't strike me as a particularly winning argument um, this isn't impeachment light anyone who reads those articles will read as severe a condemnation of this president as I think has come out of the house uh, you know in in the in the history of this country
1: in the book you also and you have many times on MSNBC responded to some of the arguments that we hear from Republicans against going ahead with impeachment, the classic one of which, of course, let's let the voters decide. Wait until November 2020. Why not?
2: Yeah, so it'd be one thing if maybe the allegations of impeachment were something else, foreign policy, who knows what. The allegations here are that he cheated, tried to cheat in the 2020 election. So the idea that you'd wait for the same election and see what the people decide in the election he wants to cheat in and has said now... He wants help from other countries like China against Biden. Um, You know, that's like saying, you know, Bill, you and I are playing a game of Monopoly and you accuse me of cheating. And I say, well, let's resolve it by playing another game of Monopoly and seeing who wins. See how badly I can cheat the next time. (laughs) Um, You know, at some point, um, you know, actions have consequences. And this president acted in a grievously wrong uh, way.
1: Uh, and the other way, the one that we hear all the time is, hey, they got the money, so he might have tried, but it didn't work, so therefore there's yeah. nothing wrong. So,
2: yeah, so this is the no harm, no foul, um, which, you know, I suppose if I pulled a gun out and tried to shoot you and missed, you could say, I could say, hey, man, you're, you <laughs> didn't, you didn't, <laughs> I missed, you're I'm okay, you're alive, alive. Right. so no problem. Uh, unfortunately, everything in five centuries of Anglo-American law rebels against that idea. Attempts are treated uh basically the same as completed offenses because you, the law recognizes when you try and do something, the fact that you fail, that you weren't that good at it, doesn't mean that you're um, off the hook. And I, I can't imagine, again, if the shoe were on the other foot, if President Obama tried and failed to cheat in his reelection, I don't think that would be much of an excuse. So that's one problem. Then the other is just on the facts it seems like some of the aid didn't ever get released, and, and the aid was, of course, delayed. And in the interim, uh, you know, this is very significant military aid. I mean, Ukraine is in a war with Russia, and that's why the Congress of the United States appropriated this money. And so um, to then hold it, and hold it not because of some anti-corruption crusade, but because of the president's personal agenda that he wants not an investigation, but the announcement of an investigation right. is, you know, is really just putting the Donald Trump's personal interests above that of the American
1: people. Now no time to go through all the lame excuses, but one more before we move on, which is there he never said and there was no quid pro quo.
2: Yeah, so I mean, you obviously there's no magic words formula in the law. You don't have to say the words quid pro quo, um, you know, in order for there to be one. Um, you know, that would be a silly rule because then everyone, of course, wouldn't say those words. I mean, it's kind of like it reminds me of the drug dealer who says, "I didn't say co- I didn't say cocaine. I said Coca Cola. So therefore, I wasn't trying to arrange a drug deal." I mean, you can look to the substance of what was said in order for everyone to figure this out. And here, you know, the president himself released not a full transcript, but, but something of a memo of the conversation mm-hmm. that occurred between the Ukrainian president and him on July 25th. And in that, you have the president of Ukraine saying, hey, I really need this military aid, this javelins. Then the next words from the president are, well, I really need a favor from you, though, though. though. And, um, you know, Republicans like to forget about that word so much so that the House Minority Leader, Kevin McCarthy, was asked on one of the Sunday shows, he's like, there's no quid pro quo. And then the, the, uh, the um, host said, well, no, the president said, I need a favor from you, though. McCarthy said, "Oh no, he never said though. That's not in you there. Added that word. <laughs> you added that word. And you know, I put all this in the book because it was just so humorous. And and then, you know, of course, obviously McCarthy's wrong. It, it is a quid pro quo. I, I think it's very hard to see it as anything else. I don't think that it's needed, by the way, in order mm-hmm. for the president to um, be guilty of an impeachable offense. I mean, even if the president simply tried, Without Ukraine saying yes or no to the quid pro quo, but if he just sought out help from a foreign government, that's the essence of you know the destruction of our democracy. Because lots of foreign governments have all sorts of ways of influencing our elections, and if it's an open season and they can do that, and we can and candidates can invite that, I don't know where that stops. And you know that's where I find 1787 so interesting. Bill, you know I got the book has a you know chapter about this and why impeachments in the constitution and one of the main reasons it's in there is because our founders were so worried about foreign influence over our government and our election system and that it's kind of the paradigmatic case that's why you have everything from like the natural born citizenship clause in the Constitution. So, you know, if you're born abroad, you can't become a president of the United States and things like that. It's because this real fear that other governments were going to muck around in ours.
1: Almost more than anything else at the time, given where we came from, as you point out, and Madison spoke about it, Washington spoke about it, Adams spoke about it.
2: Yeah. I mean, if you look at like the George Washington's farewell inauguration, I mean, it's all about the evils of foreign influence over our government and elections. And so it is, um, it's really striking to see. I mean, you know, I'm not a particularly political person. Yes, I've worked in two Democratic administrations, but, you know, I have lots and lots of friends who are Republicans. And I, you know, for most of my legal career have thought, you know, that they stand for law and order and checks and balances. And now I'm watching um, really the destruction of the principled Republican Party. I mean, if they can say this is okay, if you can say a president can go and cheat, and with a foreign government in the election system, I don't know what isn't okay for a president to do.
1: Well, I must say again, the book is Impeach the Case Against Donald Trump. Um, I can't believe how much you pack into just about 150 pages. It doesn't take a long time to read, but all the information is there. Not only the history of impeachment, But how it works in the House, how it works in the Senate, what's wrong with the process now, how it can be improved. Um, Excellent job. I want to ask you about the history of it because, as you point out, Donald Trump, this is not the first rodeo uh, in terms of presidents, President Johnson and President Clinton. How do you compare the charges against Donald Trump or what he did with the impeachment of Andrew Johnson or Bill Clinton?
2: So, first of all, thank you for the kind words about the book and its conciseness. That was really important to me because, honestly, you know, my life It's a handbook. My life is so difficult. I don't have that much time to read nonfiction. And so I wanted to write a book that other people would read and apply the same yardstick effectively to me (laughs) and say, you know, it's got to be really, um, you know, use a lot of compression and not uh, bore people with long exegesis. It's like, you know, in the Supreme Court, I have half an hour to present my case the whole case, no matter how complicated it is, I have a half hour. And I tried to do the same thing with readers here. I say, look, you don't have very much time. I want to teach you what you need to know really quickly in and out. Now, how to compare this against other impeachments? Well, the Johnson one was interesting. Andrew Johnson impeached in 1867. Um, You know, he's impeached for not what he was really most guilty of, which was being racist and horrible and trying to undo the results of the Civil War and things like that. He was impeached for violation of the Tenure of Office Act, a technicality, basically, so much of a technicality that later that act was declared unconstitutional. So, um, you know, it was not And so, you know, yes, it's, you know, it's easy to say Johnson was a horrible, horrible president, but he wasn't being impeached for any of that stuff. He was being impeached for something minor. And so it's not all that surprising that he was ultimately acquitted um, in the Senate. The Clinton one is, um, you know, there's it gets convoluted with all the stuff about you know the um, uh, about the personal allegations and the like. Um, but whatever, whatever, even if you view that as the president lying um, in a civil in a, in a civil case and so on. I don't think it'll ever reach the gravity of what we're talking about here. What we're talking about here is literally core impeachment. It's why our founders put it in the Constitution in the first place. I mean, founders like Elbridge Gerry thought in the Philadelphia Convention, I don't think there should be impeachment in the Constitution. We have re-elections after mm-hmm. all, and the president should be just be policed by that. And others like Madison um, say, well, what about if the president— is cheating in the reelection. Yeah. Um, what if there's help from a foreign government? And so that's really what they had in their mind was something actually bizarrely like what we have right now going on. And so whatever you think about about Clinton and impeachment, it feels to me like this is a much stronger case. At the time during the Clinton impeachment, even though I'd served in the um, in the clinton administration i wrote a piece basically saying i was concerned about the president's use of executive power that that was an executive privilege and that ken Starr put that in the articles and had gotten um criticized for it but that i actually thought that that had um, legs to
1: it All right and now we move uh, to the senate well we'll move to the senate right after a, a quick break here on the uh, bill press pod Today's podcast brought to you by the Laborers International Union of North America, or LIUNA. Under the leadership of President Terry O'Sullivan, LIUNA represents a real powerhouse of workers, some 70,000 public employees, plus half a million skilled construction workers active in uh, building infrastructure, roads, bridges, transit, tunnels, etc., and in the energy field building solar plants, wind farms, and of fossil fuel pipelines. So we salute uh, the members of La Thank them for their support of the podcast.
0: Man, that sunset is gorgeous. Grill, patio, sunset. Hard to get better than that unless you're browsing Carvana's inventory while you soak it all in. Oh, burger time. So sit back, get comfortable. Carvana's got thousands of cars under $20,000 just waiting for you.
1: I could stay here forever.
0: Carvana. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey.
1: We're back with Neil Katyal, former uh, Deputy uh, Solicitor General for the United States of America. i have argued 39 cases. Well, 40 40, is 40 now, now, as of this week, 40 <laughs> yeah. before the Supreme Court. And author of the new book, Impeach. The Case Against Donald Trump, you know what it's all about and how it works and where it goes from here. Pick up this book. It's paperback, and it's a good, important read. Um, There will be a Senate trial. How does that work? Who's in charge? And will we see witnesses? How do you see it playing out? So it's all
2: up for grabs right now. Uh, The uh, Senate rules do require a full trial. The Constitution requires a trial. But Mitch McConnell is not known for either following the rules or the Constitution. And um, he's started to telegraph that recently by saying, oh, I don't think necessarily we need to have any witnesses. I haven't heard of very many trials without witnesses. I don't know if you have, um, but that strikes me as a pretty anomalous result. Um,
1: if I may, he also said, I'm going to fo- work with the White House counsel in deciding uh, what's going to happen. I- isn't that sort of uh, maybe not surprising for Mitch McConnell? I mean, showing his hand, uh, that he's a member of the jury, right?
2: Yeah, I find it tremendously unfortunate that, that uh, the Senate Majority Leader would say, I'm going to work in cahoots with the target of the trial. Um, You know, I certainly can understand why conversations should happen and why you know um, why a Senate Majority Leader should talk to the White House. I'm not saying that they can't talk to them, Um, but uh, there was no semblance even of even handedness in that. And I think that's what the American people demand. I mean, I I just I'm so sick of people coming to to this town to Washington and feeling like oh my party elected me. Therefore, I can just disregard the other half of the country or more. Um, And that's what this president has done. And that's what this Senate majority leader is doing.
1: Right. Um, Is that akin to jury tampering?
2: Well, it's not jury tampering because impeachment's got a different kind of valence to it. It's got both a legal and a political component. And I think our founders did want that in for that reason. So I don't think jury tampering is the right word to use, mm-hmm. um, but I do find the idea that uh, that uh, that the majority leader would only talk to the White House and not even signal any pretense of even handiness to be ultimately tremendously undemocratic.
1: So we know that uh, the impeachment managers will make their case for impeachment. The president's attorneys, whomever, will make their case against maybe witnesses called on either side chief justice presides and then they vote and that's it correct
2: that's correct i mean and you know the, you've compressed a lot into that sentence yes, right. um, <laughs> you know and i think you know one of the really interesting questions is what will the role of the chief justice be here so you know i think he himself um, you know i've argued 40 cases in front of him he's so even handed and you know he certainly has made a lot of decisions i disagree with but they're always based on the law and um, Uh, And I expect he'll preside over these proceedings with a lot of dignity and restraint. Um, He was himself a law clerk to uh, William Rehnquist, um, our last Chief Justice. And Rehnquist, of course, presided over the Clinton impeachment. And in the book, I use this to talk about what we can expect from Chief Justice Roberts, who very much respects, uh, rightly so, Chief Justice Rehnquist. And I think, you know, what Rehnquist said at the end of it was, I... Did very little, and I did it very well in response to a question about what he did during impeachment. And I suspect the chief, uh, the current chief justice, will emulate that. But to the extent that the Senate really tries to dispense with a trial and have something of a show trial with no witnesses or something, I suspect that you know is going to try even the chief justice's patience um, to try and not be involved.
1: One thing I learned from your book is that. The, so the Senate will take that vote to acquit or convict, which means Donald Trump, if, if convicted, is out of the White House. But there could be another vote which says you can never hold public office again. It,
2: exactly. Our Constitution actually has in in its claw, impeachment clause two different punishments. One is removal from office, um, and then the other is disqualification from future office holding. And so both are available, and you can imagine very interesting you know, this is more of a, I think a law professor's right. fantasy than it is in reality. But you could say a president. You know, you could say, look, you want to leave it up to the American people uh, in the 2020 election. You can disqualify him. You, you can remove him from being president now, but allow him to run again in 2020. Or you can do the reverse. You can say, well, I'll let you serve out the rest of your term, but please don't do this to our country again. We're going to disqualify you from uh, from running in 2020
1: you make it also very clear, as did several of the witnesses in front of the uh, House Intelligence Committee, that Donald Trump, perhaps committing an impeachable offense, uh, did not act alone. Um, Bill Barr was very much in the loop. Um, How do you assess the role that Bill Barr is playing in this administration as Attorney General of the United States?
2: Well, that's a big and long question um, and probably not one I want get, to get into here as we talk about impeachment. Um, with respect to impeachment itself, Barr doesn't seem to have played too much of a role. There's two things which we know. One is that sometimes Trump would say to the Ukrainians, "Oh, talk to Barr talk, about this. Right. We don't know that Barr himself had any knowledge of those conversations, and, you know, as opposed to Trump just saying, talk to my guy about them. Um, and then the second is, I think, a really difficult question about whether Barr did act as his guy when it comes to Ukraine itself, because this all started with the CIA general counsel making a criminal referral to the Justice Department and saying, we think the president may have committed some crimes. And then the Justice Department did a secret investigation for a memo that cleared him um, by saying that, well, we don't think that this would have been a thing of value from, for the Ukrainians mm-hmm. to give the president. And I'm sorry, that is a ludicrous legal argument. The idea that a presidential candidate wouldn't benefit, that it has no monetary value um, uh, to ha- to them to have an announcement that their ch- the, the president's chief rival is now under investigation for corruption or something like that. Obviously, that's worth a lot to any political campaign. So that memo, you know, does strike me as incredibly problematic, um, and um, you know, I uh, and I'm concerned about it.
1: But does it also strike you as problematic that uh, the inspector general of the Justice Department spends two years? Looking into and investigating charges that the FBI was out to get Donald Trump from the beginning, political bias. That's the reason this whole investigation started. He comes out and says, no, there was no political bias. They had good reasons for looking into this. And the attorney general says, I disagree. And the FBI was spying, still accuses them of spying on the Trump campaign.
2: Yeah, I don't think any fair minded person could look at what the attorney general did there and conclude anything but that that was a political, partisan move and one that is so corrosive to everything the Justice Department is about, which is even-handed enforcement of the law. And, you know, when the attorney general doesn't get the answer he wants from an independent investigation to go and then just criticize it and shop for a better answer from another prosecutor, um, you know, that's, I think, profoundly against the traditions of the department.
1: Uh, Two other people that come to mind. One is Rudy Giuliani, His role in this, Um, do you believe that he could be held criminally responsible for some of his actions?
2: Maybe. Uh, You know, it's certainly he's under investigation from his own former office. He was running
1: the show, basically, Rudy.
2: So we we don't know exactly who's running the show, who's implementing the show, yeah. but you know, but whether or not Trump was running, you know, mm-hmm. it sure looks like Trump was one running, running. the show from all of this. But um, but yeah, the idea that this guy who was a legendary lawyer, Rudy Giuliani, is and ran the most elite federal prosecution office, the U.S. Attorney for the Southern District of New York. I mean, this is the position that like the show Billions is based on, and other <laughs> things. We're talking about a, a really big deal position. And now to have that same office investigating him for crimes, um, you know, is a, is a very sad thing. And you know, I certainly, um, you know, it's 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 hard to watch.
1: Um, I hate to walk away without asking you, having argued forty cases now in front of the Supreme Court, to the extent that you can give us, you know, the court well. You you clerked for uh, Justice Kagan, and you've argued in front of it. Um, now we have. Neil Gorsuch and um, Brett Kavanaugh on the court, the Roberts Court. Um, is this the most far right court that we have seen? Do you still, still think it's possible to get a fair trial in front of the Supreme Court?
2: So, so first of all, I, I had the privilege of clerking for Justice Breyer uh, oh, in 1995. Also, uh, I do wish I clerked <laughs> in 2010 when she got on the court, but uh, sadly, oh, I'm right. older. Sadly, I'm as older as than as that, so that. So but, so but I was yes, her deputy right. exactly. Yes, um, and I have so much respect for for the folks on the court. I mean, Kagan is pretty much the smart one of the two or three smartest people I've ever met and Breyer and, you know, and the chief. And so it's a really, really um, super intelligent analytic court. It is a more, you're right, it's a more conservative court. There's no question about that. Um, when Justice O'Connor left the court to be replaced by Justice Alito, the court moved quite a bit in the more conservative direction. And then when you had Justice Kavanaugh replacing Justice Kennedy, Similarly, it Mm -hmm. moved even further, Um, and so we're going to see. The time time will tell exactly how much further it will have moved. But it has moved further. Um, You know, at the same time, I I think you know nobody should think that the court is making decisions on the basis of politics. I just don't think that's how they operate. Um, They can be they can be more conservative in their ideology, in their legal ideology, Um, and you know, for people like me. Um, it's very important to understand that ideology and to um, and to make the best arguments from within it um, and uh, on behalf of a client and that's you know really what I spend my days doing.
1: Uh, and tying this to well, our conversation today about impeachment one of the issues that maybe become be will probably come before the Supreme Court is this idea of the executive powers and whether the executive has to respond or people that work for the president respond to subpoenas from from Congress. I mean, and we know that Attorney General Barr believes in the unitary executive. Mm -hmm. Um, How do you see when that issue comes before this court? Is it going to be an automatic rubber stamp for Donald Trump? Or do you think? uh... Heck
2: heck no. I hope those issues come before the court because the Trump administration has taken really ludicrous positions when it comes to executive privilege. And there's really no doubt in my mind that the Supreme Court will not let them get away with something like that. It reminds me very much of Nixon. Nixon thought that because he had put 3 people on the Supreme Court, he put actually 4 including Rehnquist, but Rehnquist ultimately recused from what became the Nixon tapes case, but you know, Nixon thought, "Hey, I got my guys on the court. Effectively, right. they'll protect me." And what did the US Supreme Court do? Unanimously rule against him on executive privilege, saying the right of the people to have this evidence is too strong and I suspect that we will get exactly the same result if Trump continues to advance these ludicrous legal arguments.
1: And the book again is Impeach the Case Against Donald Trump, Neil Katyal. Good to see you. Thanks for your good work. Thanks for joining us.
2: Thank you so much for having me. It's a real privilege.
1: And that's a wrap for today's podcast with Neil Katyal. Thank you so much for being with us. Thank you for listening. And we remind you one more time please subscribe to the Bill Press Pod. So you are a regular member. Just go to Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or TuneIn. Look for, search for the Bill Press Pod, and then click on subscribe, and you are in. And do yourself a favor by following me on Twitter, not only my frequent Twitter feeds, but then you'll be reminded of every new podcast coming up. Follow me on Twitter at Bill Press Pod, at Bill Press Pod. Over and out for now. Have a great, great, happy holiday, folks. Thank you for joining us on the Bill Press Pod, and we look forward to seeing you on the next edition of the Bill Press Pod.